Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. If, uh, if you are a device user, we, uh, we use the English Standard Translation here at Substance. If you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love for you to, to go grab one uh, on the back table by the offering box. Looks like they're actually out. All right. Well, that, I mean, that's a good sign. So, hey, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep that one that you're holding. Uh, let's, uh, let's open to the book of Galatians. Like I said, chapter 5 this, this morning. Uh, We continue in our summer series entitled Fruitfulness. It's a series that has us looking at the nine character qualities, the character traits that every Christian man and woman ought to possess and display. Uh, In our previous series through the book of 1 John, we looked at essentially what makes a Christian. Believing Jesus obeying God, hating sin, and loving others. But now, Galatians chapter 5 has us looking not so much at what makes a Christian, but rather what a Christian makes, what a Christian ought to display, so to speak, in his or her life. The Apostle Paul refers to these character qualities, these Christian traits, as the fruit of the Spirit, We see it right here, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So for those of us in this room who claim to be followers of Jesus, these traits should be evident in our lives. I wonder, uh, I asked myself this question uh, and have been throughout this series, but I wonder about you. Would your family members and friends and coworkers describe you as loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled? Is that how they would describe you? At the time uh, of Paul's writing this letter, and remember, the book of Galatians was originally a letter written by an eyewitness of Jesus named Paul. Uh, At the time of Paul's writing this letter, it was about 20 years uh, after Jesus' resurrection, and legalism was beginning to infiltrate the churches of Asia Minor. There was backbiting and there was competition as the Galatian Christians were essentially trying to outperform one another in obedience to the Old Testament law. That's why it's called legalism. Each of them had become so self-focused on out-Christianing one another that they were losing sight of the fact that Christianity at its heart is others focused. Paul explains in, in, in Galatians 5 verse 14 that the Old Testament law that they were using to beat each other up with that was intended for the exact opposite purpose. The whole law summarized by the Ten Commandments was ultimately intended to take the focus off ourselves And to place it on God that we would love him and that we would love others like he does. And this is the first of the fruit that we looked at last week. We considered love. We considered how the Bible defines love as proactively desiring and pursuing the deepest good of someone else. 
And that definition, that ought to resonate inside each one of us because to love and to be loved in this way is literally what we were made for. According to Genesis chapter one, we have been created in the likeness of a triune God. And between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is perfect self-giving love. And, and godly love, we come to understand in Scripture, has many fruitful expressions that we are called to enjoy and reflect. It doesn't stop with love. It continues with peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, the like. Today, this morning, we're going to be considering joy, which, uh, if I'm honest and candid, is something that I am often lacking in, joy. And so this morning, it sounds uh, intense. We're going to look at, we have five points that we're going to go through. We're going to go pretty quick. We're going to look at number one, what joy is. Number two, where joy comes from. Number three, who joy belongs to. Number four, why joy is important. Number five, when and how joy can be experienced. And I'll repeat those when we get to them, okay? I won't just glaze past. I want you to be able to follow. Now, I know this might be difficult to believe, but, but you and I were created, we were designed for joy. And I'm not talking about the happy, clappy, camp counselor kind of joy that everyone knows is insincere and it drives everyone crazy. Uh, I'm not talking about an erratic, on-again, off-again kind of joy that is determined by our moment-to-moment circumstances. I am talking the type of uh, joy we were designed for. We are talking about a real, sustained, rooted-in-reality joy. God God has designed each one of us for this. It's the reason we all crave it. We all crave joy. Without exception, every tribe and people group on the planet longs to do more than merely survive. We long to be joyful. We want to be happy. Just look at the books that we read and the seminars we attend, and the therapists we see, and the prescriptions we take, and the money we spend, and the careers we choose and change, and the relationships we pursue. Look at the lengths we go in an effort to experience just a little bit of joy. The struggle for joy is real, which kind of begs the question, doesn't it? If God designed us for joy, Why is joy so elusive? And the Bible tells us, we talk about this every week. The answer is, of course, sin. The Bible tells us that in God's presence are pleasures forevermore. But our disobedience toward God has separated us from him. It's true that human beings were designed for joy, but ever since Adam and Eve, each one of us has been rejecting God's design and trying to construct a life of happiness on our own, like trying to assemble Ikea furniture without the instructions, don't ever do that. 
or Legos. My, my son Bray loves Legos, but with the first couple of sets that we bought him, he jumped the gun, right? My son saw the amazing picture on the Lego box. He saw what those Legos were designed to do, but in his impatience, he ignored the instructions. He tried to do things himself without the help of the designer. And the end result, of course, was not joy. Like my youngest son who just got carried out, not joy despair. And I'm despairing with little Keller right now, buddy. He's losing it. (laughs) This is not what God wants for us. More than God wanting you to be joyful, more than God wanting us to be joyful, he commands us to be joyful. How about that? Real, sustained, rooted in reality joy is available to us this morning. It really is. Number one, what joy is. I don't know about you, but I am often quick to pit joy over and against happiness as if happiness is something worldly that I should feel guilty about and avoid. But the fact is, Scripture doesn't dichotomize the two. Jesus says in the book of John that he came to earth so that we may have life to the full, so that we would experience the full measure of his joy are literally his words. Now think about that with me for a second. Think about the amount of joy that must belong to the one who designed the colors of the sunset. Think about the amount of joy that belongs to the one who formulated the aromas of spring, who composed the sound of laughter, who generated the warmth of a hug. Think about the amount of joy belonging to the one who produced the flavors that we experience in a chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) Somebody's really resonating with that. Oh, he is so joyful. The God of limitless joy entered the world he made to share the full measure of it with you and I. Entering the world that we polluted with our selfishness and pride, God the Son became man and carried our pollution to the cross where he died in order to cleanse us and restore us to the joy that we were created for. Joy is nothing new, by the way. It's existed since Shalom in the Garden of Eden, in God's presence. Friends, what we have been given through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not merely a pardon from an eternal death, but a welcome into an eternal life, which started 2,000 years ago in an empty tomb. That eternal Life is now. It begins now. This joy, John MacArthur writes, is a happiness based on unchanging divine promises and eternal spiritual realities. It is the sense of well-being experienced by one who knows all is well between himself and the Lord. 
Joy is not the result of favorable circumstances. And even when circumstances occur that are painful and severe, joy is a gift from God. And as such, believers are not to manufacture it, but to delight in the blessing that they already possess. There's a reason why Paul, the apostle Paul, from a Roman prison cell, could write to the Philippian Christians and tell them, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, shackled here, rejoice. We need to make no bones about it. Joy is absolutely circumstantial. But of course, it's not based on the fleeting circumstances that we see in front of us. It's based on the circumstance that Jesus is alive. And if he's alive, then all of the promises that he made us stand. And if God, Romans 8, I believe, was so wonderful as to give us the son, his death and resurrection that brought us near to him again, how much more will he also give us all things? That's what joy is rooted in right there. Could it be that as pleasure-seeking Americans that we aren't guilty of overly desiring happiness We're just settling for things that are far less than what Jesus wants to give us. Number two, where joy comes from. Joy originates in and from the triune God. From God the Father who sent to us God the Son. From God the Son who sent to us God the Holy Spirit. The fullness of God's joy comes to us when we walk by the Holy Spirit, in the same obedience as Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father in heaven. This is why Paul urges the Galatian Christians and us in chapter 5, verse 16, to walk by the Spirit. Verse 25, to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. We follow the Spirit when we follow him back to the instruction booklet and do what the designer says. The biggest lie that the enemy has sold us is that obedience to God is joy depleting rather than joy producing. And so when the word of God says that it's better to give than to receive, we give knowing that in it is an abundance of joy. When the word of God says to not speak unfavorably of others, especially behind their back, when the word of God says that, well, then we resist gossip because joy is in it for us. When the word of God says to honor him with our bodies in sexual purity, even though it feels joy depleting in the moment, we believe 
that it is in fact joy producing and we obey him. And in it, we taste and see that the Lord is good. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. And when we walk by the Spirit, hear me, brothers and sisters, when we do this, we begin to understand that the Bible is not a random list of frivolous rules written by a bossy God, but the story of a creator who is more committed to our joy than we are. Oh man, if I could only... Believe that in the depth of my soul. Who joy belongs to, number three. Because of God's merciful common grace, everyone on earth can taste a joy, taste the joy of the Lord in measure, in measurable doses. As the writer of Psalm 104 reflects, God has graciously given us provisions like bread to strengthen us and wine to gladden our hearts and oil to make our faces shine. James writes that even these things are blessings from the Father of lights to a rebellious world who deserves only darkness. But the question is not who does joy merely visit in measure, but who does joy belong to immeasurably? And that answer, brothers and sisters, is believers, is Christians, is followers of Jesus. Romans 5 tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And with this love comes God's joy and peace and patience because as we looked in week one, they are all in fact one fruit Charles Spurgeon writes, think not that Christ has merely put joys within our reach that we may get for ourselves, but, but Christ has put those joys inside our hearts. This is why we can be freed as Christians. We can be freed from the pressure to manufacture joy with wishful thinking and forced smiles, which I'm so often prone to. Is anyone else tired of acting happy in church? Number four, why joy is important. Jerry Bridges writes, joy is not simply an option available only to those whose temp temperament is conducive to it. In fact, it is practical atheism for a Christian to not be joyful because it ignores God and it ignores his attributes. He continues, it is a contradiction for a Christian who professes to be a child of the one and only God who created the universe and who governs it for his glory and the good of his people, it is a contradiction for a Christian to wear a gloomy countenance. But oh my goodness, how often do I do that? And how often it seems that the Christians in Galatia 
to whom Paul wrote this letter, they were wearing a gloomy countenance. We read from the letter, look, they were, they were legalistic. They were duty-driven curmudgeons. They weren't humble, nor were they encouraging. They weren't fun to be around. They weren't others-focused. They didn't know how to belly laugh. They didn't dance during worship. Do you know what nobody was asking the Galatian Christians? A reason for the hope inside of them. And that made me think this week, and maybe it will you right now. Brother or sister who professes faith in Christ, when was the last time that someone asked you to give them a reason for the hope inside of you? When was the last time that someone saw such tangible, joy-filled hope in your life that they asked you to give them a reason for it. They asked you to explain it to them. The book of 1 Peter tells us this should be happening. We should have to give an answer for the joy and the hope that is inside of us. But if you, like me, have not been asked that question in some time, well, could it be that no one's asking us because no one's seeing any hope? Could it be that you're not being asked about the joy you have because nobody's seeing joy in you? Because when they see us at work or at school or at the stores, well, our smiles taste more like an artificial sweetener or at best, there's no smile at all, just a tired, anxious cynicism. Looking at where the political scene is going, looking at where the, what have you, in, international affairs scene is going, the economy and this, that, or the other, looking at everything. Are we just joining the melodramatic drone of a culture who has no hope. If you're a believer here in this room and somehow by God's grace, he is beginning to reveal to you this morning that there is a very real lack of joy in your life, well then maybe you and I need to pay attention to the pests and the weeds that might be choking out that fruit. Number five, when and how can joy be experienced? I know my voice is solemn at the moment, but brothers and sisters, I want us, my desire, God wants us to leave here today in a spirit of joyfulness. And not because our difficult circumstances are magically going to disappear while we're sitting here. That is not the case. But rather instead because our, confident, our confidence is in the good God, the sovereign God, the mighty God who presides over our circumstances. 
who has resolutely and finitely spoken from his cross that it is finished. That though we will have difficulty in this world, that right now in this moment, you and I can take heart and fear not because he has overcome the world. Heaven has come. Christ has won. Hope is alive. Church, where is joy found but in the words, I do not condemn you? Let's remember John MacArthur's definition of joy in there was just a nugget of wonderfulness. Joy is the sense of of well-being that is experienced by those who know that all is well between themselves and the Lord. And so when and how can joy be experienced? Brothers and sisters, I would pause it any moment that you and I stop and stare into the face of Christ. That seems like a pat answer, it is not. That we have the ability by the enabling power of the Spirit, no matter what we have faced yesterday, what we will today or tomorrow, we can stop, we can stare into the face of the one who no longer condemns us, though he justly could in our sin. The one who bore upon himself our every transgression, took the cross that we deserved for our rebellion against the holy God, and on that cross definitively declared that it, all of it, it is finished. The power of sin broken and the presence of sin when he returns, soon to be vanquished, he will undo every evil thing and every tear will be wiped from our faces. Oh, Christian, if we stop and pause and stare at the face of Jesus, we will in fact not be able to help but become joy-filled. For those of us in the room this morning who feel joyful already, maybe today you're gonna go and you're gonna have a delicious meal or maybe you'll watch a movie with your kids or take the dog for a walk. It looks like the sun is breaking through, hallelujah. Uh, Rejoice. If you're feeling joyful already, rejoice because the good things that are circumstantially churning up a natural joy in you, well, they are just foretastes of the goodness that is to come. If you're already feeling, maybe you're just a pretty optimistic person, and this morning you're feeling quite joyful. Remember Luke 10, when the 72 disciples were sent out in ministry, and they came back after having a successful week of casting out demons. They were feeling good, man. It was a joyful moment, and they came back, and Jesus said, hey, that's all awesome. Praise the Lord that things are good, but here's where you can have even more joy in the fact that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That you have been signed and sealed and delivered, bought, sought, and brought into the kingdom that is unshakable. 
your best day today will not hold a birthday candle to what's coming. That's why Osteen is such a goofball for selling books like your best day to whatever, dude. I've got glory coming my way and that's where my sights are set. Not on a new car that I'm gonna claim that's gonna rust in two years. What a goofball. With all due respect, When and how can joy be experienced when things are not going so well? When joy is out of sight to the natural eye and we can't see it. When finances are tight and I know that finances are tight. When your loved one gets sick when your loved one refuses to believe the gospel. When you lose your job. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Our joy in those moments is not driven by a change in our circumstance. Real, actual, tangible right now heart happiness is available to us with a change of vantage point. In those moments when we are out at sea and those sea billows are rolling, do we not have the tendency to just get hyper? All we can see is that wave. But believers, we immerse ourselves into community for the reason of this, that when our brothers and sisters see that we're going underneath the wave, that they can pull us out and remind us that the gospel flies at 30,000 feet and it pulls us out of that wave and it pulls us further and further and further out so that we look down onto our circumstance that feels so big and we begin to envision just a little bit of God's providential sovereign vantage point and all of a sudden, Whatever my lot, I'm in that moment taught to say that it's well with my soul because this is a blip on the radar. This too shall pass. Joy comes with the morning. My Jesus is resurrected and his promises will be fulfilled. Jesus himself hung on the cross. We read in Hebrews 12. He endured that hellish nightmare of becoming our sin and being separated from the Father and being pierced and stabbed in his heart with a spear. He endured all of it for the joy that was not in that very moment, but for the joy that was what? Set out before him. He saw it. He was immersed in the word He knew what was coming. He could claim God's future promises on that cross in that very moment. I believe his heart rejoiced. We read this about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Moments before his execution, the people around him were saying he was just filled with joy and happiness. And when the executioner came to hang him with piano strings naked, he said, this is the end but no, brothers, it's the beginning. 
and he smiled and he went to his execution. I don't know about you, but the biggest thief to my joy is anxiety. And do you know what anxiety is at the end of the day? It's me believing that somehow God is not gonna take care of my situation. That somehow I have fallen through his grip of providence. Somehow his goodness-soaked world has somehow not soaked me. And in those moments when I'm riddled with anxiety, with this constant subconscious droning fear of either a conflict that I'm walking through or a conflict that I'll have to walk through or shoot, one of my biggest fears is being embarrassed. It's looking like an idiot in front of people. It's not looking like I have all my stuff together. I care too much about what you think of me. In my moments of anxiety when I'm, af I'm afraid of pain, this is how we combat this. We take a step back. And we say, oh my God, give me the eyes to see the bigger picture that right now, right now is the fullness of joy that you promised me when I trust and obey you. Maybe the biggest thief of your joy is guilt or shame. For those of us who wrestle with guilt, has your Christian walk maybe become more duty-driven than delight-driven? That you wake up and you get in the word because you have to. I think that we'll have those days. But how about on your way downstairs this week, tomorrow, you say, oh Lord, invade my heart with happiness that I get to commune with you now. Or maybe we pray the prayer, uh, pray, pray the prayer of David in Psalm 51, walking down those stairs. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Remind me that today, though it may be the most difficult day I face, it is a blip on the radar of glory that is coming to invade this place. Give us eyes to see the glory that, that awaits, that lies ahead. That when everything, Lord, is going belly up at work or in the gym or at daycare or at school, that we would be the person who is so transfixed on the goodness of your son that we would people around us wouldn't be able to help but ask us, what is up with you, dude? This is the fruitfulness for which we were created. And we will feel the most alive and the most as creatures of the king as we will ever feel when we are walking in this fruit by the power of the spirit. 
So this is how we walk in the power of the spirit, believer. Trust God and obey him. And joy will come in the morning. It's his promise. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And as we saw last week, the only reason we can even say that is because you have first loved us. Your love was proactive toward us since the foundations of the earth. And for this, we are eternally grateful. I pray today for heart-happy brothers and sisters, not for some superficial artificial sweetening smile that we walk out of here with that everyone can see through, but a smile on our face that is resolutely believing that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will not stop at that. You have raised our hearts from the dead and you have given us not just a pardon from an eternal net death, but an entry ticket to an eternal life that starts now. And so, Lord, if we go and if from here you slay us, yet we will still praise you. Thank you for pouring the love and joy and peace and patience of Christ into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Let us today trust and obey. And for those in this room, if you are here and in your mind are wondering right now if this is for you, this joy unspeakable, if this could possibly be for you, the answer is emphatically yes. Trust that Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection is all that is needed for your forgiveness and salvation and eternal life and happiness. Believe that. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.